difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts in a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Keith Phipps. And... Genevieve Kosky. Uh, Tasha Robinson is away at Tribeca this week, but we'll get her back on in a future episode. On the first half of this episode pairing, we looked at Burden of Dreams, Les Blank's documentary about the making of Werner Herzog's Fitzcarraldo. In this half, we'll bring in James Gray's The Lost City of Z, a new fact-based historical adventure about another man who pursued his ambition through the arduous conditions of the South American jungle. Charlie Hunnam stars as Percy Fawcett, a British army officer who accepts the perilous assignment of mapping out the border between Brazil and Bolivia. Joined by his army buddy, Henry Coston, played by Robert Pattinson, Fawcett cheats death in order to get downriver, but returns on multiple expeditions in search of a lost civilization deep in the jungle. Much like Werner Herzog, Fawcett challenges nature at its most wild and dangerous, and invites suspicion and hostility from the native population. After the break, we'll talk about all the things they have in common and important things they don't. You are the explorer? Give me a hand. I wish to find a lost city. What you seek is far greater than you ever imagined. It is your destiny. I'll not know you when you return. I know this is a sacrifice for all of us. The environment's brutally difficult. The journey may well mean your life, but you could reclaim your family name. Ain't nobody comes back from up there. But we have never let fear determine our future. What did you hope to achieve out here? If we may find a hidden civilization where one was considered impossible to exist, we may well write a whole new chapter in history. I call it Zed. It is there. And we must find it. So I guess right off the top, what did you think of The Lost City of Z? I saw a movie called The Lost City of Zed. I don't know. Uh, are we going to do it that way? You want to do Zed? Uh, well, I don't know. We can do Zed. That's how it said in the they film. They do say it's Zed in the movie. This is America. We say Z. America. We say Z. No, I liked it. Um, I felt very immersed in it the entire time. I don't know. I feel like it's it has masterpiece aspirations that doesn't quite reach as a film, but I was along for the ride and I liked it quite a bit. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat or river raft or whatever whatever <laughs> yeah. you want to say like i thought it was i think stately is the, is the word yeah. i would use like it's i think a very well executed and realized film and i it was a much more kind of epic story than i was expecting i, I kind of went into this fairly cold uh, mm-hmm. like not knowing more than like the broad outlines of the of the summary and i didn't realize it would basically be a life story it would be percy fawcett's life story and um, i kind of figured out because i was like wait where's where's that tom holland kid yeah <laughs> and then i feel like oh it must be oh wait he's gonna grow up to be tom holland yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i really like james gray i, I love the immigrant a mm-hmm. lot and i think like this movie shows off his his talents as a director very well i think 
the acting is much better than I was expecting. Yeah. I think this is the first movie where I kind of bought Charlie Hunnam as Absolutely. a as a star, and a couple of her performances were, were really good too. But yeah, I I'm not like super passionate about this film, mm. but I still like really liked it. But I, I'm curious where you fall, Scott. Uh, I guess I would fall higher than the two yeah. of you. I did. You're you're a bit mostly. of a gray fanboy, right? I am a bit of a gray fanboy, and I, and I appreciate. The stateliness of it, the classical nature of it, mm-hmm. is so rare. I mean, what, who makes movies like this? Yeah, uh, uh, and this is a, one of his that has made it into theaters everywhere. And it just feels like a movie, a style of, of of filmmaking that does not exist anymore. And yet he he does it quite well. And he has the ability to evoke period very well and very specifically, and the ability to to make f- the film look really expensive. <laughs> Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, you know he did that with the immigrant too, which could not have cost much of anything, and uh, he just he doesn't. I mean, one of the people that helps him do it is Darius Kanji, the cinematographer. Because good lord, the photography in this film is so astonishing, so, and that's that's really what got it got got to me. Here's why I had I had a very Scott Tobias moment mm-hmm. watching this film. What, what, did you see this at the music box? No, I did not. Okay, so for those who don't know, Music Box is, is a wonderful you know movie palace here in Chicago, and and uh, they had a screening here in thirty five millimeter. I saw it at a theater I won't name, and I it was suboptimal. I, the projection oh, seemed no. really sub. I, mean, I really usually find good digital projection is fine. I'll take it. I always prefer thirty five millimeter, but I don't feel like I'm, I'm seeing a lesser. But this is really one. Of, I this is one of the few like experiences where I really had like the Quentin Tarantino. I'm just watching television in public mm-hmm. kind of moment. There's even like a little bits where there's like digital interference. On, oh, on the screen, no. which I've never had before. Oh it's kind of like it's like you know, take the DVD out and wipe it off and put it back <laughs> in and start over again. But uh, oh. uh, but I could tell, you know, you know, my my brain would <laughs> yeah. would sort of get through that to see yeah. what what a beautiful oh, movie it was. was. Like, so basically, it was kind of like the, the, the theatrical equivalent of those horrible screener sites with your name all over the, <laughs> all over the thing and it being in low resolution. And I watched the last two Terrence Davies movies on screeners like that, and it's mm. like, oh boy, I feel like you know, I'm, I'm watching this through a filter or something. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be a snob about it but come on i mean because that really is a, a primary virtue of the lost city of z i mean i think there's plenty of other virtues as well that we're, we'll get into but uh the photography is so extraordinary because i mean there's a you know i mean you can talk about how you're out in in nature and you're pointing the camera and how how do you not make south american jungle look pretty but it's more than that there's an artistry here the lighting is so careful and and rembrandt like at times mm-hmm. it's just the final scene mm-hmm. not, not, not getting away but the, the way the the lighting is used in that is is amazing you give it away well, we're, we're a spoiler well, that's true well, I just, well you know there's the final scene where, where there's some sort of you know perhaps sacrifice perhaps rite of passage we mm-hmm. don't we don't know uh but it's so beautifully the torches and what they do with lighting in that scene is, is amazing it's actually the the penultimate scene because oh, the true, the, true. the the final scene is also one I wanted to talk about because it displays something I wanted to bring up, which is the little touches of surrealism throughout this movie. And, and that final scene, which is when Fawcett's wife, played by Sienna Miller, opens the, the question of whether or not he is in fact still alive in the jungle somewhere, which I guess we can maybe talk about if we want. But um, there's an amazing shot of her like walking in the mirror, you know, mm-hmm. and it's the jungle through the mirror. And I'm not quite sure how that shot was pulled off, but I thought it was it was really beautiful to end on. And it was a nice merging of the two aesthetics of, of this film, because you have the very buttoned up early 20th century British element, which is very beautiful and kind of the, the stately thing we're talking about. And then this beautiful jungle photography, too. And it just kind of beautifully merges those two in that last moment. 
For sure. I mean, in, I was thinking about some of the cinematic predecessors to this movie. And, of course, A Gear of the Wrath of God <laughs> came <laughs> up. We already done that on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so we went with Burden of Dreams instead, I think for good reasons. They're different films. But I was also thinking about how it's sort of a cross between A Gear of the Wrath of God and then some of those Terrence Malick, later Terrence Malick films like The New World or The Thin Red Line where you have people who are not part of nature sort of violating in a way or er interacting with the natural world and finding a way through it. I mean, there's so many parallels to me between Charlie Hunnam's character here, Percy Fawcett, and Christian Bale in the New World, right? I mean, somebody who who initially arrives as a conqueror in in all the heavy armor, and then over the course of his time there on uh, nature and you know in, in the new world his relationship with Pocahontas sort of changes his approach you know it changes him in a fundamental way and that's, that is the same journey that Percy Fawcett goes on in this movie yeah and it's very interesting to see the rest of the world kind of catching up with him and I think that's a, a great advantage this story has in taking place over decades really is being able to unpack how ahead of his time and his thinking Fawcett was at least this characterization of Fawcett was and how at odds he was with conventional thinking, uh, particularly conventional Anglo thinking about Native cultures. I thought one of the most interesting things about this film, which is maybe interesting because this is not a period of time or in culture that I am very familiar with, but I thought it was fascinating that once America got the exploration bug and started sending their own explorers into the jungle and kind of following in the footsteps of these British explorers that how quickly that changed the British Geographical Society's opinion of of how they should be handling themselves in the jungle. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the politics of the film are fascinating for sure. And it's probably good to draw a distinction here between the fictional Percy Fawcett and the real Percy yeah, Fawcett. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard. I, I um, there's a Washington Post article that kind of kind of mm-hmm. maps out, but yeah, a lot of the progressive views toward native cultures and so on and so forth are, are very much the films Percy Fawcett and not the actual Percy mm-hmm. Fawcett. So that, that, does, uh, that doesn't surprise me at no. all. But uh, in terms of the film's characterization of him, I thought it was a really good choice yeah. for that character in I, terms of I, telling a larger story. I've seen the film referred to as, uh, as woke in the It kind of is. And, yeah. and Sienna Miller's character is a very uh, progressive uh, uh, woman for, for her era. As, sure. As well. Sure. I mean, maybe that maybe uh, it's so. fine. You're not, you're, you're, making a movie or not yeah not... right and, and i th- and i think we can i think the film earns that arc that this character goes on and what he, he learns by approaching the territory in one way at the beginning and then by the time he gets around to going back with his son which is a few expeditions later um everything comes a lot easier for him because mm-hmm. he's he's thought it through a different way and to me well he's returning home like he's yeah. returning to the place that he's obsessed about yeah and he it, but with an understanding of like how to make his way through mm-hmm. um it, it seems like such this imposing gauntlet but then the way the film ends yeah. it ends with the suggestion that like that may have been his downfall i guess like losing his fear of the jungle and of the unknowns in there you know and um it ended up I guess the the film leaves it an open question, but uh, I I don't really believe it could have ended up any other way than him and his son dying. Oh yeah, well, I, I think the film is pretty solid in its. So how did the compass? All right, since we're full on spoiler territory, how did she get the compass then? Oh, right. Th- th- well, th- I, I think uh, the film wants to have notes of ambiguity there, and, okay. and, and uh, you know that's yeah. that's part of your. But but for to be like ambiguous, there has to be like an explanation for how that compass could have 
gotten there like it it, it just I, I i didn't like that little yeah. that little button at the end because i felt like it like there was no real reasoning behind it being there other than this ambiguity that i don't think the film necessarily needed and i liked the ending the way it was which is like okay they're going to, to get killed it's just a matter of how it happens and, and how respectful they're going to even be of these guys who should not be where they are but i think there's a respect for the, the way they're trying to go up about their business that leads to a deliverance to the afterworld that is a little more gentle than uh than if they were just merely you know slaughtered so uh that that's fa- that's fascinating to me and well, the other thing that's interesting too is this the moment of revelation when that first expedition ends and and he discovers all the pottery or what he considers mm-hmm. the pottery that get, that leads him to believe that there was a civilization here and that it was sophisticated and worthy of a deeper consideration than you know his colleagues uh, back home would ever mm-hmm. consider I, I, and it just changes the film and it changes him and uh, all subsequent journeys have have a different flavor to them well, yeah, the second time he goes back to the jungle, he goes with that Murray guy who, mm-hmm. oh my, I, like, I'd, I'd be hard-pressed to think of a movie character I hated more <laughs> in the last year than yeah. James Murray, which, I mean, is absolutely the intent. Like, and, and I think like it's very purposeful the way that Sienna Miller's character shortly before that asks to accompany her husband on this journey and mm-hmm. he kind of gives her you know this line about the jungle is harder than you think you know and she's like but childbirth and he's like it's different than childbirth and you mm-hmm. know it's it's a very interesting scene that I'm not really doing justice to in my, in my <laughs> model I, I, retelling I, I, of I it that was good. I do believe I am quite ready to accompany you on your next journey what do you mean the children will be back in school by then. And I've learned to read the stars and navigate. I've become very well versed in the history of the region. After all, it is I who found the document. I know, darling. But that would be impossible. It's not a place at all for a woman. Not a place for a woman. Yes. We believe firmly in the equality between us. In equality, yes, but in mind, not in body. The rigors of such a trip would be beyond your imagination. I believe it is generally acknowledged that the pain a woman experiences during childbirth far exceeds anything a man must endure. This is not about childbirth. Do you know childbirth? Have you witnessed two minutes of it, let alone endured it? But then to quickly follow that up with bringing this James Murray character, who is a is he a major? He's like a... Well, his real claim to fame is he was second in command on the Shackleton expedition. That's right. That's right. He did have uh, exploratory experience, but he... He's got uh, bona fides. Yes. Mm-hmm. But uh, he did not bring those bona fides with him to the Bolivian jungle and um, very much acts the way that I assume Fawcett was expecting his wife would act in, yeah. in the jungle. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was a very uh, interesting and pointed pairing of potential tagalongs on this mission. Yeah, that, that's true. And I mean, I guess I guess if you're talking about the film being more progressive, you know, than, than it might have been at, at the time, I guess in that specific instance, 
his refusal to to allow his wife to go along with him despite her evident fitness to do it i guess that would be that's a 1906 type of thing and yeah i think i think those two things are related his refusal to bring her along and then this guy tagging along i mean i think maybe uh he just is better fit for a colder than a <laughs> warmer uh journey but i mean of course they face all of these obstacles you know every time they go down river i mean it, it's, it's a, a pattern really of just like okay here's the part of the river where they're going to get attacked. Yeah, where, where arrows come out of the, yeah. the bush. And, yeah. and, and there's going to be snakes. There's going to be disease that they can't anticipate. I mean, there's always that risk anytime they go out there in the, in the conditions. I mean, it's the jungle, as Werner Herzog would tell you. It's the jungle. <laughs> and it's a little hard to manage. And speaking of the jungle, that would be a pretty good chance for us to go into connections. So uh, we'll be right back after the break to talk more about the Lost City of Z, Burden of Dreams, and what they have in common. This is as good a map of Bolivia as we have. Most of it's blank, as you can see. Nothing's really known about it at all. The land of primitives. But there are rubber plantations all over Amazonia. Very profitable. There is now considerable argument between Bolivia and Brazil as to what constitutes their border. So fantastically high is the price of rubber that war could arise. Do you follow? I do, sir. Mm -hmm. Although I'm not sure what this has to do with me. I'm getting to that. Neither country will accept mapping done by the other, so they've requested us to act as referee. Mm. As you completed your mapping here with distinction, you came under our consideration. I see. Mm -hmm. Sirs, may I speak candidly? Please. My survey work was long ago. To be quite honest, I was rather hoping for a position where I might see a fair bit of action. Major, this is far more than just survey work. This is exploration in the jungle. The environment's brutally difficult. Terrible disease, murderous savages. The journey may well mean your life. At the very least, you will be gone for several years. But were you to succeed, such an undertaking could earn you soldierly decoration and even reclaim your family name. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together to talk about all the things they have in common. I think maybe the best place to start would be our two protagonists here. Oh, uh, not the jungle, where we left off oh, talking the, we last time? <laughs> the jungle. The jungle. Um, we can start with the jungle. I think that, I think the two things are related, in term, because that was the inspiration for me, really, in trying to bring these two films together, is that Malachian question of how one makes one's way through nature. Mm -hmm. on how one relates very to nature. carefully very carefully <laughs> watching for spiders um and snakes and other and piranha oh my there's piranha in los yeah. angeles yeah. holy yeah. smokes and so i think we get a much different picture maybe we don't i'm curious to hear your thoughts about the differences between these two 
characters, Percy Fawcett and uh, Werner Herzog. Well, Fawcett's a gentler soul, I would say, mm -hmm. than Herzog, and much more prone to, to wonder than disgust. But, you know, they're both men on a mission that they're not going to turn away from in the middle of an uncompromising environment that doesn't really want them there. Yeah, I think the big difference between the two besides, you know, one being a, a fictional representation of a real person and one being a real person. A fictional but, representation of a... Yeah. <laughs> also, in its own way, a fictional representation yeah. of a real person. True, true, true. Uh, well, there's a connection right there. No, but Percy Fawcett's motivations going into the jungle for the first time, I think, are notable in that he is he takes on this what is it initially like a surveying mission like mm -hmm. a, they're trying to determine the border between bolivia and brazil bolivia and brazil yeah they're trying to like map the border because of a border dispute which there's over isn't. rubber which is another connection yeah, with yeah. Uh, burden of dreams yeah so he kind of enters into this journey in hopes of improving his station in life like there's a, a lot at the beginning about you know his father kind of selling the family name and here's the line he, he's been rather unfortunate in his choice of ancestors that's right that's right yes i wrote that down and then left my notebook in the other room so mm -hmm. i can remember it but yes you know and he's been kind of attempting to work his way up through the military ranks but has sort of hit a ceiling mm -hmm. um so his first expedition is like that is what is driving him and it's the discovery of that pottery i think that we're uh let's believe is kind of the turning point and turns it into an obsession not centered on him and his station in life but on this mystery mm -hmm. it, it is it is a mystery and he's obsessed with solving it but there is i think still that shadow of hubris or, or personal gain whatever he's doing like you you see it in the when he goes back and he is kind of presenting to the british geographical society and fighting them almost to mm -hmm. to you know make himself heard and there is kind of this element of proving himself to it and i think there's definitely a mirror with herzog there in terms of the undercurrent of hubris below whatever the more poetic or romantic obsession may be well and, uh, and now that you mention it it's like percy fawcett is appealing to his financiers <laughs> uh, so in that sense that they, have, they yeah. have a lot in common but i mean are we willing to admit that like there is definitely an element of hubris to herzog kind of believing that he is the only person that can tell this story in this way and it has to be done this way. And then he's going to make things more difficult for himself than the actual and for historical others. figure. Well, no, and then the actual person he's depicting, you know, right. however loosely too. It's like, yeah. no, I, I can't take the boat apart. That would ruin it. <laughs> yeah. And also the way that they both kind of drag other people into their obsessions that, that don't have the same level of obsession. Yeah, as sure. well, he ruin, yeah. He's willing to sacrifice his relationship with his, children and his wife mm -hmm. uh, in order to realize his ambition that's that's a pretty remarkable I can't thing to imagine do. disappearing for that amount of time for my family especially with a child you know missing all the years of a child growing up that that, that was one no way like, and no way to communicate if you're okay or not right yeah <laughs> that, i mean that, they, they don't really beat you over the head with that but the film does make it clear what a tremendous sacrifice that is <laughs> and what a not uncommon sacrifice apparently it was at the but, time yeah but it also toward the end kind of underlines the level Fawcett takes it to with robert pattinson's character who we we haven't really talked much about who's a costin yeah who is originally his aide-de-camp and then just kind of his right hand man throughout mm -hmm. this whole experience and Fawcett's like final journey back into the Amazon with his son. You know, he invites Costin and Costin's like, I have a wife and kids now. <laughs> too, I, too much to lose. Yeah, yeah. That's very, very pointed. I think at that point in the film, especially uh, for sure though, I think we can, one thing we can say about how this journey changes him is that when he does take this assignment, 
it is about bettering his station, improving his rank, you know, his class, moving moving up, getting a medal for once. But then when he comes back, he he comes back defiant. You know, I mean that that speech that he gives about what he really thinks is going on there is you know, a very controversial thing for him to get up and say and, and stand behind and. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, especially at that point where yeah. he where he is coming back a success and he's achieved the station that he has been aiming for. He's you willing know. to risk it all yeah. in order to voice opinions about heresies, really, about the civilization among people that are considered savages. That, that's one of the things that I think the film draws out really well, too, is the sense of order among the people who actually live there. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, you know of how they farm and how they live and how they are part of the jungle. And the, and the, look and at the this! Landscape. They've cultivated the jungle. That, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> like, huh. That was that was a little bit of a cringeworthy line for me. Just the, okay. you know, well, just the kind of the underlining of it. You know, that is true. I mean, I think, I think you're, that's shot because I think at that moment you're getting an overhead shot of the rows of yeah. yeah rows and uh, farming. So. Maybe that does put too yeah. fine a point on it. But, I'm from the Midwest. I know what crops look like, Fawcett. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a beautiful shot, though. It is. Oh, my God. It's just, that's the thing. It's, it's all just... beautiful shots, right? That great Lawrence of Arabia edit between the alcohol pouring and then the train moving along. Oh, yeah. That, that wonderful match cut. Yeah. There's some moments here. That's for sure. Yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think that's the thing with James Gray is that he just is, wants to make you know films in a way that nobody else makes. I feel like one of these days them. he's going to make a movie that's going to be one of the best films I've ever seen. But I always feel like he's every film he has a scene is is never quite all the way there yeah. for all the way there as much as I admire them. Yeah. You know, in the, one other thing, I mean, I guess we're doing a bad job connecting these two movies because now we're just completely focusing on the city of Z. <laughs> we, but... We've lost the map. We're upriver. <laughs> we're upriver. That's right. But like, if you look at this film in the scope of James Gray's career, you know, James Gray started his career with a movie called Little Odessa, which is about an enclave of Soviet Jews in Brighton Beach. Uh, and his movies have often been about the intermingling and clashing of, of cultures. Um, that's the dominant theme of his career. He made there in the yards and two lovers and the immigrants certainly and you know this seems like a departure but it's not it's another immigrant story which details the ways in which you know the british sort of import or try to import their arrogance and and rigid class structure into worlds that that have no place for them and so for Fawcett to get away from that i think is you know kind of a hopeful moment for the film i mean it's it's, is despairing i guess as the ending might be or as you know to see a father and son presumably killed but who knows with the compass thing but uh (laughs) if we're going to assume that this was a mission it still feels like a successful one philosophically there's actually two small moments in the two films that i i think are very interesting mirrors of each other in in that regard which are the the moment i talked about in the last half with kinski refusing to drink the saliva fermented drink and then in lost city of z when Fawcett and company are taken in to a tribe of cannibals mm. and offered food and there <laughs> yeah. is there is that moment of what are they offering us and Fawcett accepts despite the fear of what they're about to get and it turns out they get fish and they they learn how to hunt the fish that have eluded them for so long which yeah. I, I thought was really fascinating but i think just in terms of the British or European, in this case, arrogance toward tribal custom. Those two moments illustrate the two films very. Yeah. Or well, I, I guess I don't want to say that Burden of Dreams takes a stance on that the way that Lost City of Z does, but you know, you certainly see 
I think you that could say sort that. of. I think you could say it maybe takes a stance on, on that. On yeah. that. And I think absolutely Herzog was is doing it. Yeah. And, and Percy Fawcett is is the, the Anthony Bourdain of his time or something, yeah. right? Just to, well, know, I, I you're mean, going to be in the culture if you're a guest, and uh, you're you're going to eat what is served to you. But I mean, like Herzog does talk some big game in in that film about you know interfacing with the with the native cultures that I don't think he necessarily walks the walk as much as he talks the talk. And that might have to do, not to excuse it, but there's a dictatorial nature to filmmaking, the way films are made. Mm-hmm. It's just like, I'm going to do whatever is necessary to get this film made. And if that involves trampling over people's sure. feelings, over their rights or you know their territory, if it moves the film forward, then I'm going to do it. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the two men are approaching these cultures in vastly different capacities and in vastly different time periods. So... Let me throw out a question related to the end of both movies, really, but particularly the Lost City of Zed. Your Anglophilia is showing, Keith. (laughs) I feel like Fawcett, whatever happens to him, he gets the answer he was looking for. I I feel like we can safely say that whatever's on the other side of this ritual, be it death or or some sort of rite of passage or whatever, you know, he gets his answers. Does Herzog? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we get that moment of reflection. I mean, at the end of the film, I think we're given... Because those, those monologues come pretty late, right? Really the, late. Yeah, and the filming is kind of wrapped up in voiceover or in narration, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, we don't see it end, mm-hmm. you know? We, we yeah. hear about it ending after the fact. I, I, I suspect Blank was just fed up and left before, <laughs> yeah. you, you know? So th- there isn't that moment of completion or satisfaction yeah. or whatever. I guess Fitzcarraldo itself would be that, but... You don't get the, the traditional end of a Herzog production where he says, that's a wrap. Wow, what a worthwhile enterprise this was, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> we had our difficulty, our shared difficulties, but we made it through, and, and uh, it's all going to be uh, up on the screen. Uh, but I think, I, I think you can maybe extrapolate from Herzog's other work and his methods and the types of films that he's made over and over again that this process is meaningful to him and and, and something that he kind of continues to do over and over again even even if he's not going to quite the extreme that he went through to make Fitzgeraldo. So these films take place you know on the same continent not too many decades apart or at least Fitzcarraldo. I mean obviously yeah. Burden of Dreams was the late 70s and early 80s, but... but In the grand scheme of things, not that many decades away from, especially the final sex sections of Lost City of Zed. No, yeah. I'm just talking about Fitzcarraldo. I was making a dumb joke about... Uh, oh. But Fitzcarraldo, right, Fitzcarraldo and Lost City of Zed do, are fairly close in, mm-hmm. in, in time. Uh, so I'm curious about... Now, uh, now I kind of want a crossover adventure. <laughs> well, we do have a little opera house moment. That's true. In, yes, in, in which La- it felt like a, an homage yeah. to Fitzgerald. Yeah, right? and I mean, there's a rubber baron, and sure. you know mm-hmm. the the whole thing. Is it... Franco Nero? It's <laughs> awesome. To see him turn up in this. Well, James Gray is a is a serious cinephile. If you've ever read any interviews with him, his interviews people talk about his interviews being better than his films. I mean, I wouldn't go that far, but he's he gives a really good quote and knows his, his cinema. And, and I think Herzog is a pretty plain influence on Lost City of Zed. No, now you're doing it. Yep, doing it. <laughs> but uh, but I'm curious about the treatment of period. I mean, we get a glimpse of what Herzog's vision is for Fitzgerald, but what about uh, La Lost City of uh, Zed? We, we've kind of already touched on it, but I think by kind of centering the story in this early 20th century period, you're positioned in a distinct moment in time where... British or European culture is clashing with a still unfolding to the, I guess, modern world culture of this this land that is considered savage by, you know, Europeans and probably Americans as well. But it allows these films to kind of tease out the notion that there's a rich culture, you know, within this unknown part of the world. 
Yeah, and the, and the the lines are literally being drawn too, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Know. Like it's you know, Burden of Dreams was filmed much later, and they're still having border disputes in that region. But just kind of the idea of this part of the world not being mapped yet. There's land that doesn't quote unquote belong to anyone, which I think also allows for these questions of tribal ownership and culture, and you know who owns this land and. Can something like the Amazon and the jungle around it be owned or claimed, I guess, would be the better term? Yeah, and the nature of the exploration in Lost City of Z is a little different, too. I mean, Percy Fawcett is not a conquistador Mm -hmm. and does not approach, even at the beginning, does not approach his job like one. Um, and he's not looking for some gear like, or again, like a conquistador for for El Dorado or, you know, a city of gold or the That, I, that idea is actually like, mocked by the British Geographical Society. Like, they're, yeah. they, we're not chasing after El Dorado. Yeah. We're not conquistadors. I and mean, they're, not, they're not as modern thinking as little, uh, <laughs> as little Percy Fawcett ends up being either. Yeah. So, so that, that changes and, and, and it becomes much more a, about archaeology and uh, anthropology and trying to get a sense of how that part of the world operates, which is a lot different than coming in and conquering and, and, and seizing. But Fitzcarraldo does another story. Well, and also I'm interested in how it relates to Burden of Dreams, too, which is kind of like we talked about. They weren't that many decades apart, but the sense of nothing is undiscovered and nothing is untouched by Western civilization has pretty much disappeared. I mean, you see, you see all the native people, you know, wearing, I forget there's actually someone wearing a Coca-Cola t-shirt. No, there's, may as well be there's a house made out of like Coca-Cola signs. Right, like, like there's right. a, like a Coca-Cola branded house in the yeah. middle of like the Amazonian jungle. Yeah. Which just is sort incredible. of a, sort of an unthinkable amount of, of Western influence in that part of the world. When you, mm-hmm. just from the world we see depicted. And well, Herzog was, 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 a, was a trailblazing uh, product placement guy. <laughs> <laughs> Little known. Burden of, Burden of Dreams is brought to you by Coca-Cola, and garlic is better than 10 mothers. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, you can find Burden of Dreams on Criterion and on Filmstruck, where it's currently streaming with many special features, uh, one of which I, I mentioned. And another one is the Les Blank short, Werner Eats His Shoe, <laughs> uh, which is fascinating. It's 20 minutes uh, and really a lot of fun. Does Lost... what it says on the box. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It is. Uh, it does what it says on the box. Uh, the Lost City of Z opened nationwide on April 21st. May not be in theaters everywhere for long, uh, but I really, really, really encourage you to see it on the big screen if you can because I just I think it's I, I for one I think I, I do like it quite a bit but uh, I think the photography in it is uh, it's something else so try to see it on the big screen and we'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment your next picture show Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, uh, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, before I get to that, I want to just recommend some quick supplementary material. Uh, We talked in the first half of this podcast about the Werner Herzog character and how he has kind of morphed into his own little piece of pop culture. And probably the best encapsulation of that character for me would be Paul F. Tompkins' version of (laughs) Werner Herzog, Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of one of the most hilarious, terrible, not it's not even that terrible, but hilarious over-the-top impressions of all time. And what I specifically want to recommend in relation to Paul F. Tompkins' version of Werner Herzog is uh, his old podcast called the Paul F. Tomcast 
had an ongoing segment called The Great Undiscovered Project, which basically featured Paul Tompkins' various characters in conversation with themselves. And Werner Herzog was a main character in that saga, along with Ice-T and Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, Is Gary Marshall in that? Uh, yes, Gary Marshall also made his way into it. Pardon my eavesdropping, but I had to say how much I support this idea of Lord Webber's, of actors each coming up with their own characters, independent of the writer of the screenplay. You do? Yes, it's very daring and experimental. An idea like this could change cinema forever. I urge you to embrace this unconventional and insane creative direction. Uh, I think when Andy said all that, he was being sarcastic. Perhaps. We do not have sarcasm in Germany, so I'm often unable to process it. In any event, it's an exciting idea that I feel you must realize. Man, you make it sound really interesting. This movie could blow people's minds. What do you think, Gary? Hmm... I guess I don't care either way. Yeah, we're going to do this. Thanks, Warner. The pleasure is mine. So uh, if you are unfamiliar with the delight that is Paul Tompkins' Werner Herzog, I would recommend checking that out. Google it. You can find it. It's a hoot. But um, as for my actual recommendation, we're recording this on a very sad day, which is the day that we learned that the director, Jonathan Demme, died. And I think all of us have kind of been very sad about that all day. And so I want to talk about his last narrative film, which I absolutely loved and which I don't think any of us got a chance to talk about in a professional capacity. I did get to write about it. Oh, you did. You did. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. But I want to talk about Ricky and the Flash, which is, I think was kind of unfairly maligned. I don't Mm -hmm. think it did very well. It fell out of theaters very fast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, I really loved Ricky and the Flash. And I think the reason I was thinking about it today is because I wrote a piece for Vox about Jonathan Demme as kind of the master of the concert film, which I think, you know, we can all agree, Stop Making Sense is Mm -hmm. just a seminal concert film. But the way that he filmed music and specifically like the energy that comes with live performance, I think really makes its way into Ricky and the Flash in a narrative way. There's some really beautiful kind of music performance scenes Mm -hmm. uh, wrapped up in a family drama, which is another mode that he worked in very, very well. And we also saw that combination a little bit in Rachel Getting Married, which is also very good, but I think probably more people have seen it and appreciate Mm -hmm. it. So if you're missing Demi, I think it's a great latter day Demi, and I would would highly recommend it. Absolutely. I'm a a big fan of that movie. And Rick Rick Springfield, you can't gotta mention Rick Springfield, who I feel a lot of affection for. And then just... His ability, I mean, not only to deal with the music, I mean, you really get a sense of, of this band and what their ceiling is <laughs> and what, what level they're going to be on forever, basically. And it's both kind of pathetic, but also poignant. And then he just works in so much of the messiness of life into the movie in a way that is so striking and in contrast to everything that had come out during the summer. I mean, it was an August movie. It made me feel like, I didn't know if I did it at the time, but it made me feel like writing an essay about how August is my favorite summer movie month because it's just full of oddball movies like Ricky and the Flash that don't really fit any kind of modern studio mold uh, but have kind of real special qualities to them. Yeah, I like this movie a lot too. And I I think I'd had... We're at a time when it's it's tough to sell anything that's not a Transformers movie or, mm-hmm. or, or, or a superhero film. And this had a trailer that looked 
pretty unappealing. It was a terrible <laughs> trailer, and I think that's why a lot of people assumed it was. Canadian. Yeah, no, you know, I've talked to people. It's like I went to see this because it looked bad. I thought it'd be funny, and, and I ended up really liking it. It's oh. like, yeah, <laughs> John the Demi. <laughs> He's not yeah. gonna, I was thinking, there's not a lot of yeah. I was bad I was, films. I was just I was just about to say, like, is there like a quote so bad it's good uh, Demi film? No, not not, oh, not a Demi be... film at all. Yeah. I feel like there's maybe there's a little dip late '90s, early 2000s, but I kind of want to go back to those oh, films no. now. And, and no, the... there's no dip. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think people, you know, are, are a little hard on Philadelphia, but, but no, I like Philadelphia. I I, Beloved, I thought was was disappointing. Yeah, relo- there's relative a lot, there's been a lot of like revival but, yeah. of that film. Yeah, I should see it again. A bit. And the novel's so. And bad. I think I think so he ended, it's, it's, I think it's he ended his career film. incredible. Yes. You know. yeah. But Keith, what about you? What is your thing? Uh, I thought about doing a demi film, but we're going to save it for for reasons that'll become obvious a little bit. I saw a film, guys, called Garlic is Good as Ten Mothers. Were you inspired by the T-shirts? I Well, and just just I had this less blank box set that Criterion put out a, a little bit ago, and and I, I dipped into it. I watched some films. I really en- enjoyed them, but that's one I've I've always wanted to see because the title is, is so delightful, and it used to just stare at me from the shelf of the video store where I used to work at. And finally, I was like, you know what? A lot of his films are relatively short. I'm like this is an hour long. I'll watch it on my lunch break, and mm-hmm. and uh, I did. And it's delightful. It, it is a, uh, I think, more representative of what Blank does, which is sort of like, kind of just show up, film things, you know, observe, use as little as you, exposition as you need to to string it together. This is mostly filmed around a garlic festival in Northern California, seventy nine or eighty. So you get to see all these different cultures and how they use garlic and sort of the brief history of garlic. But it's all kind of it's given to you by people talking about their relationship with garlic and their culture's relationship with garlic and and. Uh, he made a lot of music docs. There's a lot of wonderful, you know, folk music that plays out uh, through this. Um, and a lot of it's just, you know, kind of food porny scenes of people peeling garlic and putting it in various different ways. Uh, it's not it's not for vegetarians, this film, but, uh, you know, it doubles as a, a snapshot of, of what is, you know, food culture and just culture in general at the end of, of the 1970s or beginning of the 1980s in, in Northern California, the sort of post-hippie natural food self-helpy world of, of california that was at the time i loved it. it it is a delight from beginning to end uh it will make you want to eat um a lot of things with garlic or possibly never eat garlic again although for me i, I just wanted to go <laughs> find my nearest uh, italian restaurant and order the most garlicky thing they have yeah <laughs> which is raw garlic they just bring it <laughs> yeah um if there ever is a vampire apocalypse this is the this is the one uh, right? and oh i should mention also <laughs> it has movie. has a cameo from uh, a filmmaker named Werner herzog okay. uh, who was asked why he did not include the uh, garlic element in his film in his remake of Nosferatu. <laughs> <laughs> A valid question, Scott. What do you got for us? Well, um, I've got uh, Franz by Francois Ozon. Francois Ozon's career can be a little hard to predict, uh, other than he frequently turns to the cinema itself for inspiration. His career started with the Alfred Hitchcock homage "See the Sea" and continued with feature like homages to Fassbender and John Waters. Uh, his new film, Franz, is a remake of a fairly obscure and little-loved Ernst Lubitsch anti-war movie called Broken Lullaby about a former French soldier who travels to Germany after World War II and gets involved in the lives of a dead soldier's family. Uh, Franz makes a number of significant changes to the Lubitsch film that I won't give away here, but it's a beautiful, complex movie about the arbitrariness of war and the utility of lies. Uh, Ozan shoots the film mostly in black and white, but he toggles back to color in very pointed and quite affecting ways that sort of change the whole tone of the film as well as the look. And if you've seen the Lubitsch film, you know a crucial detail about where Franz is going, but I won't spoil the revelation for you. I will, however, 
share this speech <laughs> from the dead soldier's father to other German fathers who have lost their sons to the French, which Ozan lifts verbatim from Broken Lullaby. Uh, quote, when thousands of other men's sons were killed, we called it victory and celebrated with beer. When thousands of our sons were killed, they called it victory and celebrated with wine. We are fathers who drink to the death of our sons. Powerful stuff, uh, in my opinion. So, France uh, by Francois Ozan. And I should, I can reveal, I guess, that uh, I'm writing the liner notes for this picture. Perhaps that was a, a preview box. of the liner notes. A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. So, um, uh, oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, no one, since we haven't, as long as you, you probably wouldn't do it, but can I just say that you're also writing the liner notes to a film called Lost in America? Oh, coming out from Criterion yeah, yeah. in a couple of months. That's you a can. big deal for yeah, Scott Tobias. It is, and, uh, it is the, uh, one of the larger feathers in the, in the hat. <laughs> To be able to canonize or be assist in the canonization of, you know, one of my personal heroes, uh, that is an incredible thing to be asked to do, and um, I'm excited about the film getting released. I'd be excited already because I feel like he, Albert Brooks is somebody who has always uh, deserved greater acknowledgement than he than he's received um, as a writer and director, and I think. Lost in America is a, good, a great choice, and I'm, I'm I was really happy to uh, be a part of it. So, July. Is when All right. Out. Well, uh, a pre your next picture show recommendation for that to go back to France. Is it in theaters? How can, how can yeah, people you can see, see it? it? You can see it. it France is in theaters currently. Music mm-hmm. Box Films is putting it out, so. and uh, and so it should, should be trickling about. Uh, if you go to musicboxfilms.com, you can know where it's going to show up in your town. I, sh- uh, I should point out for people who may be googling as I was and not turning up anything. This is France. F R A N T Z. Yeah. No. You, oh, did I make it sound like France? No, F R A N Z. Oh, Franz. Yes, France. The, the, the T is silent. The T is silent, like, giant, like the D. <laughs> and there's and there is a 1972 film called Franz without the T. So okay. I was getting confused. Okay, Franz, but... <laughs> Franz with the T. In the theaters tea. now. In theaters now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it's another it's another beautiful film. It was nominated for a billion César awards and won only one, and that was for cinematography. It's the most important one, right? In my opinion, I like cinematography. <laughs> so pretty. Like, I, I honestly, I don't have that sophisticated uh, point of view on films. I just like, like them when they're really pretty. <laughs> so uh, that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out May 16th and May 18th. Keith, what do we have lined up? Well, as Genevieve noted, if you notice a slightly more somber tone uh, in, this, in, in these episodes, it's, we're recording at the, the evening after Jonathan Demme's death. Uh, Demme was a one-of-a-kind talent, as, as equally at home making gentle comedies, tense thrillers, documentaries, and concert films, and infusing them all with his distinct, humane sensibility. While I suspect the episodes will be a full-on Demi love fest, we're going to focus on that last uh, school of filmmaking uh, I mentioned by uh, focusing on the concert films. And keeping with the spirit of the podcast, we're going to look at the relatively recent uh, Demi concert film, Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids, which is uh, streaming on Netflix now, and his landmark Talking Heads concert film from 1984, Stop Making Sense. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Burden of Dreams and the Lost City of Z and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith Phipps. You can find me at uprocks.com and you can find me on Twitter at kphipps3000. Genevieve? 
I am at Vox.com at the culture section there. And I've been writing about movies lately. I recently reviewed The Fate of the Furious there. And I uh, wrote a little appreciation of Jonathan Demme's concert films there uh, today as well. But mostly I am uh, behind the scenes in an editorial capacity there. You can also find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Scott? Uh, you can find me at, at Scott underscore Tobias on Twitter. And you can find my bylines at uh, New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, Vulture, Variety, Uprox, Guardian. And I am the editor in chief at uh, Oscilloscope's Musings blog. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via Twitter at nextpicturepod and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance producing the show. And thanks for Genevieve Kosky for providing recording space at her home base, Genevieve Kosky's apartment. <laughs> the Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts on the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. Welcome to the jungle. It gets worse every day. You learn to live like an animal in the jungle where we play. You got a hunger for what you see. You take it eventually. You can have anything you want, but you better not take it from me in the jungle. Welcome to the jungle. I want to hear you scream. Welcome to the jungle.